0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. Chief Technology Officer Michael Kratzios is adding another job to his portfolio. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says Kratzios will serve as acting Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. FedScoop reports Kratzios has been U.S. CTO for almost a year. The Defense Department is also getting a new top uniform cyber advisor. Rear Admiral William Chase will replace outgoing Major General Dennis Crawl as senior military advisor for cyber policy to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. C4ISRnet reports Chase's portfolio will include policy, strategy, and personnel implementation across the Pentagon. The Navy has a deal in place to launch its medium unmanned surface vessel program. It's given L3 Technologies a $35 million contract for a prototype. Breaking defense reports the contract includes an option for eight more ships. that could make the contract worth up to $281 million over the next seven years. The chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Government Operations Subcommittee, Jerry Connolly, says he'll demand more answers from the Trump administration about how it plans to reopen agencies. One of the witnesses at the committee's hearing about reopening has recommendations to make that reopening easier. Chris Mim is managing director of strategic issues the Government Accountability Office. Chris, thanks very much for coming on the program. What was the message you wanted to convey to the subcommittee at this hearing?
1: Well, it's my great pleasure to be with you today, Francis. The that- the the key messages there were actually a couple of them. One is that the government did not shut down and has not shut down. What we're talking about is reentry at this point. Tens of thousands of federal employees, hundreds of thousands, have continued to operate and execute the mission of their agencies using telework and, and in, in other ways uh, during this this period um however as agencies think about reentry, there's a number of key considerations that they have to have in place and in, including effective planning um telework can be a vital part of that both during uh, the periods when we're out of our physical locations as well as going forward into the future and we think that the census bureau has has really shown a a, a good model for how agencies can think about this and as they've been managing the decennial census
0: one of the issues that came up at this hearing, Chris, is that the administration does not have a comprehensive plan for every agency. And I wonder if that's the distinction. Is, is the distinction in your view that the administration doesn't have a comprehensive plan that then allows the agency's latitude to change their operations? Or is it that the administration doesn't have a comprehensive plan that's the same at every agency that is uniform among all the agencies?
1: Yeah, and one of the things is that we have a, a work underway looking at the planning that's going on at, at federal agencies and at the uh, the top kind of government-wide. So we're still in search of that, that unified plan that you, you mentioned. What we would want to see is flexibility at agencies because these are going to be inherently local decisions that agencies are going to have to make. And that's just not agency-specific, but that's a, in very specific geographic areas. As we've been seeing, you know, in, in all of us in, in recent weeks, as the uh, coronavirus has continued to roll out across the country, is that it's affecting different areas in different intensity at different points in time. And so what we want to see is is certainly a set of uniform guidance, a set, a set of consistent questions that agencies can be asking themselves as they think about this. And we think our, our key considerations can be helpful in that regard. But the decisions have to be very, very local in their nature based on science.
0: So what are those key considerations, Chris?
1: Well, there are a number of them that we think are are absolutely important. And and these are all from lessons learned from the H1N1 uh, uh, pandemic uh, back in uh, 2009, 2010. First is that you have to be very intentional in your planning. And that is that you you have to make sure that you're you're working off of science, that you're thinking about the operational implications of either being out of the office or once you return to to the office. Second, you need to be transparent in communicating with your employees. And that has to be two-way communication. You have to understand their anxieties and concerns, and that you have to be able to respond to those anxieties and concerns. Third, as I mentioned a moment ago, they have to be local decisions. Fourth is that we would urge them to, to work very closely with other federal agencies that are located in the same area. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to be making the same decisions at the same point, but to the extent that there are different decisions, we want people to be working off of a similar set of science, a similar set of questions, and then understanding why those differences are taking place across agencies. And fourth, and, or rather, and finally, we believe that you have to be agile, and again, this is what we're seeing as the as the virus continues to roil across the country, is that areas that we we thought we, we had gotten over it, or not never over it, but had begun to bend the curve, are now back in the thick of it. Um, other areas are now experiencing it for the first time. You have to understand that a reentry decision that you make today may need to be rolled
0: back tomorrow. The, the What you're describing there is inherently the challenge It strikes me, that the decisions that have to happen here are going to be horizontal as well as vertical. A VA office in San Antonio is going to be different than a VA office in San Diego, and the VA office in San Diego is going to be different than the naval uh, installation in San Diego just because of the nature of the people that are there and all those other things. Is there enough material in those key practices that you're suggesting here for people to be able to navigate that matrix, whatever it winds up looking like, Chris?
1: Um, you know we we always you know like to think our our you know key considerations are going to be helpful to agencies. Frankly, there's a, a number though of of Good guidance and, out, uh, and that that's out there for agencies. Obviously, the CDC has uh, information that's out there in checklists. We've seen checklists from uh, OSHA. The Partnership for Public Service has put together a, a, a good list of considerations for agencies. We're doing continuing work, um, looking at agencies and, and working with them as they think about reentry on this. Um, so it's you know we're part and, and believe we we believe were a constructive part of a larger puzzle that the agencies need to put together as they're thinking about reentry.
0: We have about a minute left, Chris. Continuity of operations-wise, this is probably the biggest disruption maybe since 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina for uh, organizations that were affected by that directly. What are the lessons learned based on uh, in the context of COOP?
1: Well, I think there's a a couple of things that we need to be thinking about in, in the you know, perhaps the difference from both 9-11 and Katrina is that, you know, 9-11 was, was a, a shorter period, obviously, when we all shut down, and Katrina was was as catastrophic it was, as it was, was more isolated, and it provided agencies an ability to, to move work to, as it was appropriate to, you know, to other locations. There's some of that opportunity now, um, but the, what they need to be aware of is that where they think they may be safe, where things may be going well, tomorrow could be a completely different circumstance. And so I think one of the big lessons learned, and it gets back to that agility, point is making sure that they're constantly on top of the science, that they're communicating with their employees, keeping them involved in the decisions and understanding the decisions that are being made, and then also understanding that, that a decision that's been made today uh, about re-entry or not to re-enter uh, may have to be radically different. There's also the point, and you were making this a, a moment ago about uh, um, the, the VA, is that positions that require more contact with the public um, are going to have a, a, a different set of decision matrix. Than those that that don't decisions that uh, you know where people have to be in the office in order to do the work will have a different decision matrix where those that uh, for those types of jobs that are better able to tell the work um so there's a, a lot of complexity and a lot that agencies need to balance off here very difficult decisions that they have to make
0: chris mim great insight as always thank you very much for coming on
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate it.
0: Up next, more on safety as federal employees return to the office. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you should do if you think the workplace you're going back to isn't safe. The Census Bureau and the Internal Revenue Service are just a couple of the agencies that have plans out now for bringing employees back to offices across the country. Feds have options if they're called back to work be- and before they feel safe. Joanna Friedman is partner at the Federal Practice Group. Joanna, thanks very much for coming on. What's the number one or maybe top three things that employees should keep in mind if they're called back and they're not sure their workplace is safe?
2: Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I think there's a a few things that employees can um, have in mind if they're directed back to work Um, first and foremost obviously the concern is going to be whether the workplace is safe. Um, If it's not perhaps um, they can request a reasonable accommodation to telework if they have a medical condition that puts them at high risk of exposure to the virus. Um, However, they will have to be able to show that the position that they are in can be performed in a telework status. Um, Secondly, employees um, can perhaps use leave under the safety and weather leave act. Um, However, this is an act that's only eligible for employees who cannot work in a telework status. Um, And so that means that if you can show that your workplace is unsafe or even the commute to your workplace is unsafe, then perhaps you would be eligible for leave under that act. And lastly, um, there are um, certain criteria under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that will allow employees to at least have um, a couple weeks of paid leave if they themselves are experiencing symptoms from the virus or caring for someone who has the virus or perhaps have no childcare alternative or also under a state mandated order to stay at home.
0: The first part of our program tonight, Chris Mim from the Government Accountability Office talked about the fact that the considerations will be different in every office pretty much across the country. Does that mean that the considerations that employees might have to deal with and that their managers might have to deal with will be different for each location as well, Joanna?
2: I think that's fair. Um, what, what we've been seeing with federal employees across the country is that there are different policies that are put into place depending on the agency you're working for, and like you said, depending on the location of, of that agency. However, there are certain um, rights and acts that are in place that all federal employees have access to, such as requesting um, a reasonable accommodation under the Rehab Act, or, as I mentioned, the Weather and Safety, Leave Act, or FERCA.
0: What's the recourse that an employee has if it, if he or she asks, for example, for telework, and that request is denied, or, or there are other accommodations an employee asks for that uh, are denied? What what should she do about going to WHO to try to, to get some kind of, uh, of remediation?
2: I think the reality is there is no simple fix. Um, However, an employee can always respectfully ask for reconsideration and, um, put up, you know, um, as much information and documentation that they have to support why they believe staying in telework is, is necessary for them. Um, but if, if you know, requesting um, a reasonable accommodation or reconsideration of decision is not successful. Um, An employee can file a complaint or a disclosure complaint with the Office of Special Counsel or an agency's Office of Inspector General, where essentially they would be saying that the working conditions are unsafe and thus a hazard to themselves and the public. Um, In addition, you can file an OSHA complaint. Um, However, unfortunately, any of the aforementioned types of complaints are not gonna result in um, a quick result. And so then federal employees are put into that position where if they are directed to report back to the workplace and they refuse to do so, they could very well face disciplinary action for um, failure to obey an order or supervisory instruction.
0: And that's where I wanted to go next. You told GovExec recently that uh, employees shouldn't just refuse to go back to work because they think the workplace will be unsafe. That's uh, that's potentially actionable by their manager, correct?
2: Well, it's hard for me to 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 give a blanket rule to all federal employees because every federal employee have a different situation. Right. Um, however, there, there's a saying in, in our business of, of supporting federal employees that obey now, grieve later. And and what that means is, yes, as a federal employee, you have to be very careful um, if, if you don't obey the directive and then file the complaint thereafter. However, you know, maybe there are employees out there that can't afford to do that because they have, you know, serious health risks um, that are going to come first and and so if if this happens what what we suspect is potentially there could be proposed disciplinary action but I would think that these employees will have some pretty good arguments to make as to why you know they should not be disciplined under these circumstances
0: 30 seconds Joanna what will you watch as all of this unfolds and employees go back to the office
2: whether the federal agencies can really put um, safe requirements into place for their employees You know, a lot of uh, federal agency campuses employ thousands of employees. And so it's very difficult to practice safe social distancing rules and guidelines put out by our very government in those circumstances.
0: Joanna Friedman, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Up next, making the most of the Pentagon budget, straight ahead on Government Matters, incentivizing O&M to stretch the Defense Department's dollars. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Pentagon has billions of dollars in a use it or lose it fund for operations and maintenance. The ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry, would like to let the department roll over some of that money from year to year. Lieutenant General Tom Spore,. U.S. Army, retired as director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Tom, thanks very much for coming on. You have a new issue brief out about this, but this is not a new issue to you and your colleagues at Heritage why is this something is there something about the timing of uh, congressman thornberry's amendment or something going on budget-wise with the department or something else that you are talking about this issue again yeah thank you francis the timing
3: is right they're working on the national defense authorization act and they're also working on the defense appropriations act for 2021 and so if this is going to succeed uh these weeks these next couple of weeks are the only time that it's possible Uh, for the Congress to make this change to allow these operations and maintenance funds to last more than one year, which is what they do now. On on October 1st of every year, this money turns into pixie dust and uh, can't be used by the department. That creates all kinds of bad behaviors.
0: What are some of the bad behaviors that you've seen or that the department itself has even documented over the years, Tom?
3: Yeah. And so starting around July in the Department of Defense at all levels, there's an enormous pressure to spend all the money that you have been given. And so you start getting messages from your higher headquarters saying, why isn't your spending at this appropriate level? And as the time goes on, as weeks pass, the pressure increases. And as the year goes on, the fiscal year, uh, procurement offices, contracting offices become more and more jammed as people try and flood those offices trying to get this money spent. And that contributes to a number of bad uh, decisions. You know, it's just like if you went to a store and someone told you you only had 10 minutes to buy what you needed, you'd probably make some bad decisions. And that that's what happens in the Department of Defense.
0: And in that context, Tom, I might not make bad decisions that I was happy about, but I might feel obligated to do it just because I knew that money would disappear, What's different about the department from other agencies that have the ability to roll this money over? You cite the Justice Department in your work. I've read reports Homeland Security also has accounts that they can roll over from year to year. Why isn't this something that the the Defense Department can do?
3: Yeah, and so it is every year in the appropriations bill. Congress requires that operations and maintenance money is only good for one fiscal year, is expiring on one October. And so other departments, and I don't know why, have been given more flexibility. I think Congress feels an especial need to uh, give the Department of Defense a lot of oversight, a lot of uh, help spending it, its money. And so, thus far, they've been relatively reluctant to grant any measure of relief and flexibility on these funds.
0: Um, some recommendations that you and your colleagues make in this report the first one is authorization to carry over 5% of the money. To next fiscal year. Why is 5% the right number and what difference would that make, Tom?
3: Yeah, I don't know that 5% is the exact right number, but usually it's the last couple of months. We we are just, the DOD is just struggling to spend the last one or two or 3% of their operations and maintenance funds. And so if they can get that small measure of relief and it would equal about $14 billion for the whole DOD, that would take a lot of the pressure off because usually. Uh, people are close by the end of the year, uh, they're within 90 plus percent of spending all their money. That last 5% if they could carry it over and they had the knowledge that it would not go away and turn to nothing. Uh, would be a huge relief for the Department of Defense.
0: I'm quoting here on, on this recommendation, Tom, further require the DOD, Congress should, further require the DOD to report on the efficacy of this authorization as it considers whether to make this exception permanent. What would you like to see in that report? What information would be most useful for Congress to determine whether the, the, in, the execution fulfilled the intent?
3: Yeah, and so reports at all levels from Leadership about whether or not they're still they're able to make better financial decisions with this relief. I mean, you ask anybody from the captain in the army all the way up, uh, they the pressure they feel starting is just enormous, and so they're making decisions uh, just in order to get their higher headquarters off their back about spending. And so, if Congress could see that this is having you know a, a positive effect on DOD, I th- think that would uh, mean a lot. And I think. In the end, the Pentagon and the uh, American taxpayer would be better for it because we'd be getting better, more effective decisions.
0: Uh, Less than a minute left, Tom. You note in this report that Congress has been apprehensive about this in the past. Do you think because of Congressman Thornberry's push this year that there is a better prognosis potentially?
3: This is the best chance I have seen in years of anything like this getting through. So I would like to see that... uh, You know, Congressman Thornberry asked for 50% of the O&M funds, that's too high, and then Congress won't be willing to relinquish that high an amount. Uh, But I think a smaller amount, maybe 5%, uh, maybe even just as a test program, would go a long way to making our DOD more efficient.
0: Tom, great to have you on as always. Thanks very much for your insight. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, the NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond Virtual Conference is happening this week. Tomorrow's Day 3. You'll learn how COVID-19's impacted the Navy and Marine Corps with Assistant Secretary for Research, Development, and Acquisition Hondo Gertz, Chief of Naval Personnel, Vice Admiral John Knoll, and more. It is available all week long from 1 to 2 in the afternoon. You can join our free webinar at FedInsider.com, or you can tune in to WJLA 24-7 News.